Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. You know, the other day we took some time on their feast day to get to know, uh, on the time of their liturgical memorial, we took the time to get to know Saints uh, Timothy and Titus. And I thought we'd take some time today to get better acquainted with uh, and kind of stimulate our imagination regarding uh, St. Thomas Aquinas. And with me to help us do this is Dr. Kevin Vost. He's the author of more than a dozen books and, and working on more. We expect to see more from Kevin. He's written on Thomas Aquinas, How to Think Like Aquinas, A Sure Way to Perfect Your Mental Powers, Aquinas on the Four Last Things, Everything You Need to Know About Death, Judgment, Heaven, and Hell. And he has a new booklet called 20 Answers Aquinas. Kevin, good to have you with me. Uh, thanks so much for having me, Al. It's always my pleasure to be with you, and especially to be talking about St. Thomas Aquinas. Yes, yes. There's, he really is, uh, I mean, only St. Augustine has this kind of star power that St. Thomas Aquinas does, right? That's right. You know, in our own catechism, I believe number one for references is St. Augustine, and, and following up right behind him uh, is St. Thomas Aquinas. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. Well, let's, uh, let's first of all start with dates. Uh, what, what did his life span? Sure. As with so many people in the medieval period, we were not often not sure their exact birthday, but we believe he was born in the year 1225. Okay. And we know he died on March 7th, 1274. So he lived right during those those mid 50 years of the 13th uh, century. Okay. His name, uh, uh, Thomas Aquinas. What do those words refer to? What's his uh, first name? Is Aquinas his last name? What? Yeah, yeah, it, the, Aquinas would have been, you know, our, our anglicized version of saying uh, Thomas of Aquino. Of Aquino, yeah. Uh, he was born, yeah, yeah near near this town, Aquino, in, in Italy. Uh, and I believe he was the seventh child uh, of his parents, who were, were semi-nobility uh, at the time. But okay. yes, Thomas was born in uh, Italy. Okay. And he was born into a, a well-established family, uh, upper class, would you say? Yes, yes. Okay. And that's did the did the family have um, a certain type of job or vocation that they were known for? Uh, yeah, the family uh, themselves I don't require the exact uh, job or, or vocation. They they were a noble family that had uh, had, had some royal ties. Thomas's mother, I believe, originally had come from France. They were a well-to-do people. But they, they, they did have nobility and power, and they had plans. You know, and at that time, often you know, one of the children would have been dedicated to the church, and that was their plan for St. Thomas. Okay. So from about the age of five, they took him to the famous uh, Abbey of the Monte Cassino in yeah. Italy wow. to be trained uh, by Benedictines when he was only uh, five years old. But even the Benedictines, remember at that time, he kind of cr- uh, created a stir from his early moments there because he's always walking around asking the monks, a very somewhat difficult question, which was, what is God? <laughs> oh, really? So he's precocious uh, in that respect. Yeah, he absolutely was. And in some ways, you know, Thomas spent the rest of his life, you know, digging deep and, and answering that, that question and, and sharing it with us. Yeah, yeah. How long did he, I mean, so he's, he goes in there at age five at Monte Cassino. Uh, does, he, does he basically grow up? being instructed there? 
yeah, yes, he did receive instruction for years from the Benedictines. But at some point, and he, it said he always cherished their spirituality through the rest of his life. But at some point in his teens, uh, this new order came to his attention. This order of preachers, wow. the the friars of Saint Dominic de Guzman, was, was a relatively new order. Then I guess they've been been around only ten or fifteen years when Thomas was young, and he really felt a strong attraction to them because their special charism was was focused on preaching and and teaching. Their motto itself was veritas or truth. Yeah. And Thomas, you know, with this with this intellectual bent, with this thirst for desire and desire for knowledge. He decided he wanted to become one of these guys, one of these ragtag groups of friars that actually went around begging for their living, uh, and his parents weren't too fond of the idea. Doesn't. So, so on his way to, uh, it, with this group of Dominicans out of Italy, his parents arranged for a couple of uh, Thomas's brothers to actually kidnap him <laughs> and bring him back to the family castle so they could kind of... Uh, you know, deprogram, deprogram him, him. And not to join the Dominicans. <laughs> Depro de an early instance of deprogramming. Um, it, it, so, was it that were they offended that these ragtag preachers just didn't comport well with their noble standing? Yeah, you know, it seemed like they, that was the case, and they they were you know devout people, and they did also have contacts with the Pope. So it said that. Their goal for Thomas was that he would one day be the, the abbot, that he would run that, that you know, the Monte Cassino oh, okay. uh, Abbey. That was their goal for him, so they even arranged at one point. I believe they got permission from the Pope to, to uh, allow Thomas to remain in his Dominican robes while being the abbot of Monte Cassino, you know, try to make arrangements like this, but Thomas would have nothing to do with that. You know, he, he wanted to follow this his, this call to, to preach and teach, even though it was a low-status thing, you know, yeah. even though he'd be one of these these uh, beggars without uh, a firm, guaranteed income. At first. Yeah. Did, did, um, how, how long uh, did they, how, did they imprison him? I mean, how did they keep hold of him? Yeah, you know, the, the stories go that he, he was kept there, you know, in, in the family castle. I don't know exactly if he was, you know, behind barred doors, but <laughs> but, but he was there for, and for, for a good matter of months. And at times, you know, there's stories. His brothers actually one time hired this beautiful courtesan to, to go in and, and seduce Thomas, to get his thoughts away from all these things. And the story is that Thomas picked out a, a burning log from the fireplace and basically chased her out the door. You know, he had, had nothing to do with that. Also, they sent in his sisters to try to dissuade him. And at least one of them later herself became a religious sister. Isn't that so good? It, they yeah. had a, they, and they eventually realized this, this wasn't going to work. Thomas was not going to change. He he used his time and activity, you know, to study scripture, to study Aristotle. Uh, and, and later, then, you know, he uh, uh, he he you know, was let go. Did join the Dominicans and eventually went to the the University of Paris to become one of the foremost uh, professors of philosophy and theology. Yeah, you know, there's a story that. Uh, after chasing away that uh, courtesan, uh, that he fell into a mystical ecstasy with angels appearing to him as he slept. Is that a reliable report? That that you know ha that was reported by people at the time. I don't recall if it was at his canonization yeah. uh, proceedings, but that was a story that he had a vision of the angels. He was given a special gift of chastity. But we we do know for a fact that. From people who heard Thomas's confessions at the end of life, that said that you know he, he remained chaste for the rest of his life. Mm. That wasn't an, an issue for him. Right. And another thing, Thomas also when he talks about things like the virtues of chastity, the virtue of temperance, you know, 
He can give us insights, you know, from the graces that he received from God to have self-mastery in that area. Yeah, beautiful. So when he finally, the family relents uh, and he leaves, does he immediately, where does he go? Because the Dominicans are, are still new. There's no big Dominican institutions yet, right? So what does he do? Yeah, at this point, yeah, at this point they're becoming they're becoming established. I think this is, the order was founded. I think like twelve sixteen or around there. Okay. So it had been around fifteen or twenty years. There are some different houses. Uh, soon, when he was still young, he went to study under their greatest uh, theologian and philosopher, uh, Saint Albert the Great. You know your oh. your namesake. Yes, I so love he was it. Still a young man, he studied with Albert uh, and, and went to the University of Paris there to undergo some of his own training and then later teaching. He also followed Albert to Cologne, Germany, where they set up this special institute to train uh, the Dominicans. So, so early on, Thomas did receive you know, specialized training at, at various places in, in philosophy, in, in scripture, and in theology in general. Wow. So, I mean, this is, I mean, he's getting the best education possible. Monte Cassino had to be great education, and now he's with Albertus Magnus, <laughs> Albert the Great. Um, what did he, how long, I mean, like, I'm trying to think of what that would have been like. Would he have been a student under Albert or was he also teaching under Albert's direction? Yeah, at, at first, at first he was a student under Albert and others. You know, later he went through various ranks that they had at time of teaching. Now, there'd be certain, certain topics that the students would teach in a certain order. Uh, things on scriptures, something on commentaries on uh, one of the famous, most the- theological commentaries at the time. Uh, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm blocking it. The, the name is escaping me. It wasn't Abelard. The, the Peter Lombard? Uh, the sentences? Peter Lombard, yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Thomas would comment on Peter Lombard's sentences, you know, to teach the students, which at that time was like the master compendium of theology. Right. right. Thomas himself would then write his own commentary on that. And then later, his own book, the Summa Theologica, would, would eventually supplant it. Huh. Uh, you, why was he called the dumb ox? Yeah, this is a wonderful story, too, that some of the sources tell. Uh, Thomas was known for being a very, very large man, where, where the ox part came in. Okay. And also, he was known to be very, very quiet and silent, oh. you know. And when we hear the word dumb, we often think it means somebody is maybe not so bright. Right. There's also that meaning, you know, that implies that a person is not speaking. Interesting. So when Thomas was young uh, and at school, many of his other students thought he wasn't so sharp. <laughs> and they could see he was very, very big. So they gave him that nickname, the dumb ox. And one of the classic stories was that St. Albert heard about that one time. And he told his students, he said, hey, I just want to let you know that you call him the dumb ox, but someday the lowings of this ox are going to be heard around the world. And I always like to think that they're still heard today, wow. 748 years after Thomas left us on earth. What a word of prophecy we have. Wow. Exactly. Um, you know, I people often think of him as a philosopher, but he's really, he was really a theologian, and even a biblical theologian, wasn't he? Oh, absolutely. And interestingly, you know, in modern times, when different researchers have tried to look at the impact of great thinkers over time on subsequent thinkers yeah. by looking at like how often they're cited in, in, in scientific writings or academic writings. This Charles Murray did a book called Human Accomplishment a decade or so yes, back. Yes, yes, I remember. And he's ranking 
Yeah, he, he ranked Thomas Aquinas as number six in philosophy. Hmm. I, I remember he had him ahead of people like Socrates even and St. Augustine. But the, the kind of the kicker was that, yes, Thomas knew philosophy. He was a master of philosophy, but he was primarily a theologian. Right. Philosophy is, was one of the tools in his toolbox. Yeah. You know, but it wasn't yeah. even his, his forte, his specialty. So, so, yes, Thomas employed philosophy as a tool in service of theology, but he was primarily a, a theologian. Very good. Kevin, hold it there. We'll take a break, continue the conversation. My guest, Dr. Kevin Bose, is the author of more than a dozen books, a number of them, on St. Thomas Aquinas. And today uh, we are celebrating uh, the feast day of St. Thomas. And so I thought we should get to know him a little better. Sometimes the saints seem very far away from us and abstract. Uh, we're trying to get some details that will enliven our image of him. Thank you for being with me. I'm Al Crested on this feast day of St. Thomas Aquinas. We're delighted to have with us Dr. Kevin Vost, author of more than a dozen books and a number of them uh, on the topic of St. Thomas. We've been looking over St. Thomas's life. Uh, we are to the stage in his life where he is, uh, you know, it has been instructed by uh, Albert the Great and is beginning to become a teacher himself. Kevin, uh, when, I mean, a lot of people, when they think of the 13th century, they think of Christendom, they think of the church's control, they think of a golden age, but it was really a time of crisis, and in particular, intellectual crisis. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, how why St. Thomas dealt with Aristotle as thoroughly as he did. Uh, yes, because at that time, you yeah, have the 13th century, so much was going on. And there was this growing influence of some, you know, rediscovered works of, of uh, Aristotle in particular, this profoundly, you know, powerful intellect. Mm -hmm. And some people perceived it to uh, be a threat to the church because some of Aristotle's ideas, you know, are not in accord with Catholic right. teaching, though, though so many of them, so many of them are. So some people felt threatened by Aristotle, you know, tried to, to suppress his works. Uh, and, and some people even criticized, like, St. Albert the Great and Thomas. Mm -hmm. for using Aristotle. But I will say with St. Albert, uh, he, he definitely used Aristotle in, in very, very wonderful ways, though he also wrote a treatise on the errors of Aristotle. And so they were not just taking him in this kind of thought in blindly. Right. But, but anyway, uh, uh, for, for St. Thomas there then, people thought that Aristotle was a threat, but, but Thomas realized, no, no, the power of his logic, many of his metaphysical ideas, many of the ways he understands the, the, the nature of the human intellect and will, he said that, that's in line with truth, you know, and that's good stuff. It can, it, it strengthens our, our capacity to understand who we are. Some of Aristotle's proofs for the existence of God, Thomas incorporated and used and, and adapted. So Thomas thought there was a great wealth of material there. In fact, kind of uh, metaphorically speaking, people, some of the people at the time said, people like Thomas and Albert, no, you're watering down the divine, you know, the, the wine of the gospel, the gospel with the, the water of human philosophy hmm. and secular knowledge. And Thomas hmm. says, no, we're, we're taking this secular, the waters of secular truths, and we're turning them into wine by you putting them at the service of the church. So Thomas was the, the key figure there, really in showing the ultimate compatibility between faith and reason. 
in showing that a Catholic should never fear what comes from a secular philosophy or science as long as what that philosophy and science is, is speaking is actually true. Because, you know, God is truth. God's yeah. the author of truth. And reason and science are not going to conflict uh, with the truths of the faith. Would this synthesis of faith and reason be his principal uh, intellectual achievement? Uh, I say that you, you could certainly, I believe you could argue so. I, I tend to think so that way uh, myself. And I will say there's possible, There's also a personal angle there, uh, Al, because I grew up Catholic. I was an atheist for 25 years <laughs> from reading some of the wrong kind of philosophy. Right. It right. was in my early 40s when I read St. Thomas Aquinas uh, that I realized faith is reasonable. Yes. Uh, I found out later that in the 1800s, Pope Leo XIII had said that people who say they're only going to follow reason and not be led by you know faith, he said what's going to draw them back to the church is the stirrings of the Holy Spirit and the writings of the church fathers, especially St. Thomas and in scholastics, especially St. Thomas Aquinas. And that is exactly what happened to me. So huh. Thomas can also be a bridge in our time yeah. for people who, who who think in terms of science versus religion, faith versus reason. Thomas can show us that synthesis and, and help, you know, help break through that false dichotomy and help people see the truth of, of God and of Christ. Uh, the Dominicans were a mendicant order. Uh, did Thomas travel a lot, or did he take up uh, a teaching position somewhere? Yeah, he you know he did do some travel, and Dominicans were famous, you know, in that century for for going throughout Europe, right. you know, not yeah. even on a, a donkey on foot. Yeah. So yes, Thomas did some of that. He he moved a few places throughout his lifetime. He was at the University of Paris as the premier professor there twice at different periods in his life. In the meanwhile, he was in Germany and Cologne. He was in uh, some other places in Italy. He was at a time down near Naples. So he did do some traveling. But in most places, he was there for, for some years at a time, and he always continued his work. And like his teacher, St. Albert, when he did visit different cities, different universities, uh, he was constantly going to their libraries and reading these precious books, which may have been available, you know, only there in that right. place, you know, right. long before the printing press. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Uh, was he? Do, do we have any idea how his students related to him? Did they, did they like him? <laughs> yeah, well, th that's a good question, because one thing, you know, St. Albert is noted, noted for having his most fantastic student, which is uh, St. Thomas Aquinas. Right. But in Thomas's, Thomas's own case, off the top of my head, I can't think of the, like, next generation people who were immediately there uh, under his influence. Uh, now, now, Albert, Thomas's own teacher, was one of the very earliest champions of St. Thomas, mm -hmm. because some people, even after Thomas's death, some, you know, people high in the ecclesiastical orders in places did attack him because they still weren't right. sure of these ideas of incorporating secular philosophy. So it really took some measure of time before Thomas, you know, became widely uh, accepted within the Dominican order and within the church. Okay. But but after some, some crucial point, you know, the, the term, you know, Thomists was, was coined, people who followed St. Thomas Aquinas, and there have been like an unlimited line of Thomas, from Thomas Day, you know, to the present. Yes, and, and many different schools, too, uh, under that umbrella. Um, oh, absolutely. Most famous work is the Summa Theologia, the uh, 
is what is it though? Yeah, the Summa Theologia, a, a summary of theology. This is Thomas's biggest work, his masterwork. Okay. It's like a, over a million and a half words long. It's over three thousand pages long. Uh, and in brief, it is a summary of theology. It has three main parts. The first part starts with the things of God. The second part focuses on, on creation and on human beings in particular. And then the third part focuses on Jesus Christ, the church, and the sacraments. And so people say it forms a great circle. You know, from God flows man and creation, comes back around. How do we get back to God? Well, through Christ, as a mediator who brings us back to God. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, the book is said to be a great grand circle, like the, going from the, the Alpha to the Omega and back, you know, from the beginning to the end. We start with God and, and we end with God. So, but it's a masterpiece. Uh, it addresses thousands and thousands of specific questions about God, about the teaching of the church, about natural law, about human reason, about virtue, about happiness, about each one of the sacraments, about death, judgment, heaven, and hell. So it's really an amazing encyclopedia of Catholic knowledge. But I'll say it's more than just an encyclopedia, though. It's not just like alphabetically arranged items. It's also like a great cathedral, like a great symphony, because Thomas ties it all together in each and every part. It's just an, an amazing, a monumental achievement. Is, did he consider this an advanced work or an uh, introductory work? How did it function for him? Yeah, that's a good question, because one of the shocking things in his very first little preface he said this was a book intended for beginners. <laughs> so, I mean, <laughs> nobody was daunted by it today. The, the, uh, one of the Latin-English hardcover versions that's out now, the shipping weight's over 40 pounds. You, know? <laughs> and you get that and you think, this is for beginners? <laughs> but, but in Thomas's day, he was probably speaking about, you know, theological seminary students who would have had some prior background in philosophy. So probably not ranked beginners, but that is how he described it. Mm-hmm. But even though he described it as being for beginners, it's probably the most thorough work, masterful work of theology that, that we've ever had, which is one reason why it is referenced like over 60 times within our own uh, uh, current day catechism of the Catholic Church. Yeah, yeah. Um, what was the work, the Summa Contra Gentiles? The super, Summa Contra Gentiles was a smaller work, only like uh, 350,000 words or so, you know, still <laughs> still pretty substantial. But But this was done... Uh, some people thought it was done against the Gentiles or as a way to evangelize Muslims and non-Catholics. It also covered some of the same material that the Summa Theologica does. It didn't use this, the same classic question-and-answer format. It's more like straight text. Okay. But in the first three books, he tells what we can know about God and man based on reason alone. So he's going to be able to reach out to people with other religions and say, you know, you, you have reason, you can employ logic, you have the evidence of your senses— Here's how all this points to God. And then the, the fourth, the, the last part of that Summa Contra Gentiles, he, um, he focuses into on the actual tenets of the faith. So the first parts are focused almost primarily on reason, mm-hmm. but reason focused on God and faith and morals. And then the, the last, you know, he, he does also explicate our faith itself. So that was another uh, an earlier masterful work, the Summa Contra Gentiles. You know, uh, one other thing in, in reading um, the Summa Theologia, uh, it, it is he doesn't insert a lot of his personality uh, into it. I mean, you know, there's, there's no anecdotes about his life or anything of that sort. And a lot of people wonder what kind of personality was he. And I wonder if we get some sense of that from uh, 
the songs that are attributed to him. Can you tell us about those? Oh, oh, yes, yes. Thomas you know, is known for his great, you know, abstract theological and philosophical works, but he's also considered one of the greatest poets of the 13th yeah. century. He wrote beautiful, beautiful uh, hymns for the Feast of the Corpus Christi. If I can use one example, I have one in front of me here. Yeah, please. From one of his, he says, Devoutly I adore you, hidden deity, under these appearances concealed. To you my heart surrenders self, for seeing you all else must yield. Jesus, whom I see unveiled, what I desire, when will it be? And here he's expressing his thoughts and his feelings uh, in regards to the Eucharist. Mm -hmm. The hidden deity, Christ is there, he's concealed for us. And Thomas yearns for that day when he'll see Christ face to face. And he just has many hymns and poems that are absolutely beautiful, even when they're translated into English. But when you read them in the original Latin, they also, they, they rhyme, they, they're, they're sonorous, they have an amazing rhythm. So, so God just blessed St. Thomas so much in his intellect, and I think Thomas showed that gratitude back to God by creating the, these beautiful hymns to him. Uh, we've got about two minutes left, Kevin. Uh, take us to the latter part of his career, and actually, why don't we talk about, uh, he stops writing. Tell us what were the circumstances behind that. That's right. That's right. In December of 1273, I think December 6th, he has some kind of a, a mystical experience, some kind of a, an experience in which he decided he wasn't he wasn't going to write anymore. Uh, he told his friend Reginald Paperno that uh, he, it seemed like what he had written w- w- was straw, and he really didn't write anything substantial again for the remaining months of his life. And some people think, oh, Thomas, uh, he he renounced what he wrote. He thought you sh- we shouldn't have done all this abstract theological stuff. But I like to think it's very, very otherwise. Uh, Thomas was given a, a mystical glimpse of Christ, and the stories tell us that he was, and Christ said to him, Thomas, you've written well of me. You know, what would you ask of me? And Thomas says, only you, Lord. You know, yeah. He just wanted to be with Christ. So I like to think Thomas wrote about things including charity, the, the highest of the virtues. Mm-hmm. And Thomas described the way you climb the ladder of charity, and the highest rung is you desire nothing but union with God. And I like to think that, that through his writing, through his prayer and study, at the end of his life, Thomas reached that rung where all he wanted was God. He couldn't write. He couldn't focus on lesser things yes. anymore until a few months later, God, God brought him up to join him in heaven. Uh, Kevin, thank you. Beautiful, beautiful uh, summary of St. Thomas Aquinas. Uh, I greatly appreciate you taking the time to be with me. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much, Al. Dr. Kevin Vost, you can see him at drvost.com. We'll have it linked.